Section 11 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 1, Chapter 11 Lady Persiflage. Hampstead rushed up to Hendon almost without seeing his stepmother, intent on making preparations for his sister, and then, before October was over, rushed back to fetch her. He was very great at rushing, never begrudging himself any personal trouble in what he undertook to do. When he left the house he hardly spoke to her ladyship. When he took Lady Frances away, he was of course bound to bid her adieu. I think, he said, that Frances will be happy with me at Hendon. I have nothing to do with it, literally nothing, said the marchioness, with her sternest frown. I wash my hands of the whole concern. I am sure you would be glad that she should be happy. It is impossible that anyone should be happy who misconducts herself. That, I think, is true. It is certainly true with misconduct such as this. I quite agree with what you said first, but the question remains as to what is misconduct. Now, I will not hear you, Hampstead, not a word. You can persuade your father, I dare say, but you cannot persuade me. Fanny has divorced herself from my heart for ever. I am sorry for that. And I am bound to say that you are doing the same. It is better in some cases to be plain. Oh, certainly, but not to be irrational. I am not irrational, and it is most improper for you to speak to me in that way. Well, good-bye. I have no doubt it will come right some of these days, said Hampstead as he took his leave. Then he carried his sister off to Hendon. Previous to this there had been a great deal of unpleasantness in the house. From the moment in which Lady Kingsbury had heard that her stepdaughter was to go to her brother, she had refused even to speak to the unfortunate girl. As far as it was possible, she put her husband also into Coventry. She held daily consultations with Mr. Greenwood, and spent most of her hours in embracing, coddling, and spoiling those three unfortunate young noblemen who were being so cruelly injured by their brother and sister. One of her keenest pangs was in seeing how boisterously the three bairns romped with Jack, even after she had dismissed him from her own good graces as utterly unworthy of her regard. That night he positively brought Lord Gregory down into the drawing-room in his nightshirt, having dragged the little urchin out of his cot, as one might do who was on peculiar terms of friendship with the mother. Lord Gregory was in Elysium, but the mother tore the child from the sinner's arms and carried him back in anger to the nursery. "'Nothing does children so much good as disturbing them in their sleep,' said Lord Hampstead, turning to his father. But the anger of the marchioness was too serious a thing to allow of a joke. "'From this time forth for evermore she is no child of mine,' 
said Lady Kingsbury the next morning to her husband, as soon as the carriage had taken the two sinners away from the door. "'It is very wrong to say that. She is your child, and must be your child.' "'I have divorced her from my heart, and also Lord Hampstead. How can it be otherwise, when they are both in rebellion against me? Now there will be this disgraceful marriage.' Would you wish that I should receive the post-office clerk here as my son-in-law? There won't be any disgraceful marriage, said the Marquis. At least what I mean is that it will be much less likely at Hendon than here. Less likely than here? Here it would have been impossible. There they will be all together. No such thing, said the Marquis. Hampstead will see to that and she too has promised me. Shaw! exclaimed the Marchioness. I won't have you say Shaw to me when I tell you. Fanny always has kept her word to me, and I don't in the least doubt her. Had she remained here, your treatment would have induced her to run away with him at the first word. Lord Kingsbury, said the offended lady, I have always done my duty by the children of your first marriage, as a mother should do. I have found them to be violent and altogether unaware of the duties which their position should impose upon them. It was only yesterday that Lord Hampstead presumed to call me irrational. I have borne a great deal from them and can bear no more. I wish you would have found someone better able to control their conduct. Then, with a stately step, she stalked out of the room. Under these circumstances, the house was not comfortable to any of the inhabitants. As soon as her ladyship had reached her own apartments, after this rough interview, she seated herself at the table, and commenced a letter to her sister, Lady Persiflage, in which she proceeded to give a detailed account of all her troubles and sufferings. Lady Persiflage, who was by a year or two the younger of the two, filled a higher position in society than that of the Marchioness herself. She was the wife only of an earl, but the earl was a knight of the garter, lord lieutenant of his county, and at the present moment secretary of state for the home department. The Marquis had risen to no such honors as these. Lord Persiflage was a peculiar man. Nobody quite knew of what his great gifts consisted, but it was acknowledged of him that he was an astute diplomat, that the honor of England was safe in his hands, and that no more perfect courtier ever gave advice to a well-satisfied sovereign. He was beautiful to look at, with his soft gray hair, his bright eyes, and well-cut features. He was much of a dandy, and though he was known to be nearer seventy than sixty years of age, he maintained an appearance of almost green juvenility. Active he was not, nor learned, nor eloquent, but he knew how to hold his own, and had held it for many years. He had married his wife when she was very young, and she had become first a distinguished beauty, then a leader of fashion. Her sister, our marchioness, had been past thirty when she married, 
and had never been quite so much in the world's eye as her sister, Lady Persiflage. And Lady Persiflage was the mother of her husband's heir. The young Lord Hoboy, her eldest son, was now just of age. Lady Kingsbury looked upon him as all that the heir to an earldom ought to be. His mother, too, was proud of him, for he was beautiful as a young Phoebus. The earl, his father, was not always as well pleased, because his son had already achieved a knack of spending money. The Persiflage estates were somewhat encumbered, and there seemed to be a probability that Lord Hoboy might create further trouble. Such was the family to whom collectively the Marchioness looked for support in her unhappiness. The letter which she wrote to her sister on the present occasion was as follows. Trafford Park, Saturday, October 25th. My dear Geraldine, I take up my pen to write to you with a heart laden with trouble. Things have become so bad with me that I do not know where to turn myself unless you can give me comfort. I am beginning to feel how terrible it is to have undertaken the position of mother to another person's children. God knows I have endeavored to do my duty, but it has all been in vain. Everything is over now. I have divided myself forever from Hampstead and from Fanny. I have felt myself compelled to tell their father that I have divorced them from my heart, and I have told Lord Hampstead the same. You will understand how terrible must have been the occasion when I found myself compelled to take such a step as this. You know how dreadfully shocked I was when she first revealed to me the fact that she had promised to marry that post-office clerk. The young man had actually the impudence to call on Lord Kingsbury in London, to offer himself as a son-in-law. Kingsbury very properly would not see him, but instructed Mr. Greenwood to do so. Mr. Greenwood has behaved very well in the matter, and is a great comfort to me. I hope we may be able to do something for him some day. A viler or more ill-conditioned young man, he says, that he never saw. Insolent, too, and talking as though he had as much right to ask for Fanny's hand as though he were one of the same class. As for that, she would deserve nothing better than to be married to such a man, were it not that all the world would know how closely she is connected with my own darling boys. Then we took her off to Konigsgraf, and such a time as I had with her, she would write letters to this wretch and contrive to receive one. I did stop that, but you cannot conceive what a life she led me. Of course I have felt from the first that she would be divided from her brothers, because one never knows how early bad morals may be inculcated. Then her papa came and Hampstead, who in all this has encouraged his sister. The young man is his friend. After this, who will say that any nobleman ought to call himself what they call a liberal? Then we came home, and what do you think has happened? Hampstead has taken his sister to live with him at Hendon, next door, as you may say, to the post office clerk, where the young man has made himself thoroughly at home. 
and Kingsbury has permitted it. Oh, Geraldine, that is the worst of it. Am I not justified in declaring that I have divorced them from my heart? You can hardly feel as I do, you whose son fills so well that position which an eldest son ought to fill. Here am I with my darlings, not only under a shade, but with this disgrace before them, which they will never be able altogether to get rid of. I can divorce Hampstead and his sister from my heart, but they will still be in some sort brother and sister to my poor boys. How am I to teach them to respect their elder brother, who, I suppose, must in course of time become head of the house, when he is hand in glove with a dreadful young man such as that? Am I not justified in declaring that no communication shall be kept up between the two families? If she marries the man, she will, of course, drop the name. But yet all the world will know because of the title. As for him, I am afraid that there is no hope, although it is odd that the second son does so very often come to the title. If you look into it, you will find that the second brother has almost a better chance than the elder, although I am sure that nothing of the kind will ever happen to dear Hoboy. But he knows how to live in that state of life to which it has pleased God to call him. Do write to me at once, and tell me what I ought to do with a due regard to the position to which I have been called upon to fill in the world. Your most affectionate sister, Clara Kingsbury. P.S. Do remember poor Mr. Greenwood, if Lord Persiflage should know how to do something for a clergyman. He is getting old, and Kingsbury has never been able to do anything for him. I hope the Liberals never will be able to do anything for anybody. I don't think Mr. Greenwood would be fit for any duty, because he has been idle all his life and is now fond of good living. But a deanery would just suit him. After the interval of a fortnight, Lady Kingsbury received a reply from her sister, which the reader may as well see at once. Castle Hoboy, November ninth, My dear Clara, I don't know that there is anything further to be done about Fanny. As for divorcing her from your heart, I don't suppose that it amounts to much. I advise you to keep on good terms with Hampstead, because if anything were to happen, it is always well for the dowager to be friends with the heir. If Fanny will marry the man, she must. Lady Di Peacock married Mr. Billy Boy, who was a clerk in one of the offices. They made him assistant secretary, and they now live in Portugal Street, and do very well. I see Lady Diana about everywhere. Mr. Billy Boy can't keep a carriage for her, but that, of course, is her lookout. As to what you say about second sons succeeding, don't think of it. It would get you into a bad frame of mind and make you hate the very person upon whom you will probably have to depend for much of your comfort. I think you should take things easier, and above all, do not trouble your husband. I am sure he could make himself very unpleasant if he were driven too far. Persiflage has no clerical patronage whatever, 
and would not interfere about deans or bishops for all the world. I suppose he could appoint a chaplain to an embassy, but your clergyman seems to be too old and too idle for that. Your affectionate sister, Geraldine Persiflage. This letter brought very little comfort to the distracted marchioness. There was much in it so cold that it offended her deeply, and for a moment prompted her almost to divorce also Lady Persiflage from her heart. Lady Persiflage seemed to think that Fanny should be absolutely encouraged to marry the post office clerk, because at some past period some Lady Diana, who at the time was near fifty, had married a clerk also. It might be that a Lady Diana should have run away with a groom, but would that be a reason why so monstrous a crime should be repeated? And then, in this letter, there was so absolute an absence of all affectionate regard for her own children. She had spoken with great love of Lord Hoboy, but then Lord Hoboy was the acknowledged heir, whereas her own children were nobodies. In this there lay the sting. And then she felt herself to have been rebuked because she had hinted at the possibility of Lord Hampstead's departure for a better world. Lord Hampstead was mortal, as well as others, and why should not his death be contemplated, especially as it would confer so great a benefit on the world at large? Her sister's letter persuaded her of nothing. The divorce should remain as complete as ever. She would not condescend to think of any future advantages which might accrue to her from an intimacy with her stepson, her dower had been regularly settled. Her duty was to her own children, and secondly, to her husband. If she could succeed in turning him against these two wicked elder children, then she would omit to do nothing which might render his life pleasant to him. Such were the resolutions which she formed on receipt of her sister's letter. About this time Lord Kingsbury found it necessary to say a few words to Mr. Greenwood. There had not of late been much expression of kindness from the Marquis to the clergyman. Since their return from Germany, his lordship had been either taciturn or cross. Mr. Greenwood took this very much to heart, for though he was most anxious to assure to himself the friendship of the Marchioness, he did not at all wish to neglect the Marquis. It was, in truth, on the Marquis that he depended for everything that he had in the world. The Marquis could send him out of the house to-morrow, and, if this house were closed to him, none other, as far as he knew, would be open to him, except the Union. He had lived delicately all his life, and luxuriously, but fruitlessly as regarded the gathering of any honey for future wants. Whatever small scraps of preferment might have come in his way had been rejected as having been joined with too much of labor and too little of emolument. He had gone on hoping that so great a man as the Marquis would be able to do something for him, thinking that he might at any rate fasten his patron closely to him by bonds of affection. This had been in days before the coming of the present Marchioness. At first she had not created any special difficulty for him. 
she did not at once attempt to overthrow the settled politics of the family, and Mr. Greenwood had been allowed to be blandly liberal. But during the last year or two great management had been necessary. By degrees he had found it essential to fall into the conservative views of her ladyship, which extended simply to the idea that the cream of the earth should be allowed to be the cream of the earth. It is difficult in the same house to adhere to two political doctrines, because the holders of each will require support at all general meetings. Gradually the Marchioness had become exigent, and the Marquis was becoming aware that he was being thrown over. A feeling of anger was growing up in his mind, which he did not himself analyze. When he heard that the clergyman had taken upon himself to lecture Lady Frances, for it was thus he read the few words which his son had spoken to him, he carried his anger with him for a day or two, till at last he found an opportunity of explaining himself to the culprit. "'Lady Frances will do very well where she is,' said the Marquis, in answer to some expression of a wish as to his daughter's comfort. "'Oh, no doubt. I am not sure that I am fond of too much interference in such matters. Have I interfered, my lord?' I do not mean to find any special fault on this occasion. I hope not, my lord. But you did speak to Lady Frances when I think it might have been as well that you should have held your tongue. I had been instructed to see that young man in London. Exactly, but not to say anything to Lady Frances. I had known her ladyship so many years. Do not drive me to say that you had known her too long. Mr. Greenwood felt this to be very hard, for what he had said to Lady Frances he had in truth said under instruction. That last speech as to having perhaps known the lady too long seemed to contain a terrible threat. He was thus driven to fall back upon his instructions, her ladyship seemed to think that perhaps a word in season. The Marquis felt this to be cowardly, and was more inclined to be angry with his old friend than if he had stuck to that former plea of old friendship. I will not have interference in this house, and there's an end of it. If I wish you to do anything for me, I will tell you. That is all. If you please, nothing more shall be said about it. The subject is disagreeable to me. Has the Marquis said anything about Lady Frances since she went? The Marchioness asked the clergyman the next morning. How was he to hold his balance between them if he was to be questioned by both sides in this way? I suppose he has mentioned her? He just mentioned the name one day. Well... I rather think that he does not wish to be interrogated about her ladyship. I dare say not. Is he anxious to have her back again? That I cannot say, Lady Kingsbury. I should think he must be. Of course I shall be desirous to ascertain the truth. He has been so unreasonable that I hardly know how to speak to him myself. I suppose he tells you. 
I rather think his lordship will decline to speak about her ladyship just at present. Of course it is necessary that I should know. Now that she has chosen to take herself off, I shall not choose to live under the same roof with her again. If Lord Kingsbury speaks to you on the subject, you should make him understand that. Poor Mr. Greenwood felt that there were thorny paths before him, in which it might be very difficult to guard his feet from pricks. Then he had to consider if there were to be two sides in the house, strongly opposed to each other, with which would it be best for him to take a part. The houses of the Marquis, with all their comforts, were open for him, but the influence of Lord Persiflage was very great, whereas that of the Marquis was next to nothing. End of section 11 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina